out. Um, last week, we started a series called our, just our yearly annual vision series, and we are now in week two of that vision series, which last week we looked at the big subject of who we are. We said that we're a family of sinners and saints that are being formed into disciples who love God, we love others, we ultimately live in such a way, in a purposeful way, to make Jesus known in all that we do. Today we're going to take a look at part, well, just part two, in other words, the idea of our practices or what we do. We'll get more to that just uh, in a moment, and then next week we'll take a look at how we advance, how we see ourselves advancing together. With that being said, I'm going to just pray real quick, and then we will jump in. Uh, if you guys want, you can open your Bibles to the book of Luke chapter 9, and that's where we're going to be landing in just a moment here. Uh, before we uh, get there, we'll make a couple statements after I'm done praying, then we'll get to work. So let me pray, and we'll jump in. So God, we ask you right now that you would just open our hearts, our minds, our eyes, our thoughts, our imagination to hear, to learn, to grow in the ways that you want to teach us. God, as followers of you, we want to be transformed and conformed into your image. God, we know that we can't do this on our own. We do this together in response to the Holy Spirit, but we also do this in community, in relationship to other people. So God, I pray that you just help us to have hearts that are quick to obey everything that you call us to live according to. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. So before I jump in and we begin to read, I kind of want to start with just a little bit of an example. So let's just say, for example, last week you were down at Farmer's Market and uh, Farmer's Market, can you guys make sure, can you guys all see? We might need to turn up the lights just a little bit so you guys can all see, read your Bibles a moment here. Um, at Farmer's Market, let's say, for example, you're downtown and you see some guy uh, playing Sweet Child of Mine on guitar. He's just absolutely ripping. And you are not only inspired, um, you're moved because it's an amazing song. And at the end of the day, you're just like, oh my gosh, I want to be able to play Sweet Child of Mine just like this downtown in front of an audience because that's what rock stars do. It's amazing. The problem is you've never played guitar in your life, number one. Number two, you don't have a guitar. You've never even touched one. So you got some problems now to overcome. Um, so let's say, for example, God bless you. Let's say, for example, you are downtown at a coffee shop, all right? Fast forward a few days into the week, and all of a sudden, some guy comes walking up to you with some big top hat, cigarette hanging out of his mouth, and a Gibson Les Paul, and he walks up to you and says, I want to give you a guitar. This is the guitar I played, right? Slash, my name's Slash, and I, I played this guitar in the infamous music video uh, from the 80s or whenever this came out, right? And then in your mind, you're just like, oh my gosh, I have Slash's guitar. Uh, I have this incredible inspiration and desire to rip and playing Sweet Child of Mine. And the question is, and you might even say, I have even a venue set up. So the question is, um, if you were to go downtown and then begin to play Sweet Child of Mine, again, mind you, backstory, you've never played before, how well will you succeed? You will totally fail, right? So the point that I would make is this, is, is it enough to just simply have a great desire and even a great axe to play something that a skilled musician plays? And the answer is obviously no. And then the question you might ask is, have you become the type of person that can play skillfully an incredibly complex or complicated guitar riff? And the answer is no, you haven't become that type of person. So let's say, for example, you're even downtown, you have a really good friend, and they're like, you know what, they're a prayer warrior, and they pray for you. And in an act of divine providence, you are actually able to play in that moment, sweet child of mine. 
again, you may have had divine intervention to allow you to play this incredible guitar riff in this moment, but you've still not become the type of person that when called upon at any moment that can play that song. Because the answer is, it takes a lot of practice to be able to play like that. You can't just expect someday to show up not having any training, not having had any interaction with the guitar or even being able to play guitar. And it doesn't even matter how big of heart that you have or how much motivation you have to do it. You have not become the type of person that can actually do that. So here's the thing. That is exactly the same way as it comes to following Jesus. Exactly. The, the question is, is this, is what does it look like to actually become a type of person that lives and acts and does the things of Jesus? How do we get there? How do we do that? How do we accomplish that? Is it all desire? No. Some of us, we have massive desire. Like, I want to be like Jesus, but very far from that. And we're not accomplishing that goal. And there may be some reasons for that. But the point of the matter is, it's not just enough to have a great desire to be able to accomplish that. It takes practice. It takes training. Or as some would describe, as one author, I think Eugene Peterson, he describes it as a long obedience in the same direction. In other words, think of it this way. Daily, rhythmic obedience over and over and over and over again so that some point throughout your life, you will then begin to take the shape You'll begin to look like, act like the one who holds our hearts, Jesus. You'll begin transform, to, be, to begin to be transformed by this action or activity. Or as another author describes it as practices of grace or evidences that take place in our lives on a daily level. So that being said, is what we really want, as I mentioned earlier, we looked at last week, this idea, we basically broke it down. There's three major things, I'll show you a little graph here, of just kind of what we described last week, a little bit of summary from last week. We saw that Jesus calls people to follow him. He says, I will make you to become disciples, and it says his disciples then follow him. We basically said summary number one, that we want to be the type of people that, number one, are being with Jesus daily but also to being like Jesus by way of our actions and the way that we think, but then also doing the stuff that Jesus does. So what we said is how we describe it as a church community is we say we are being formed to be disciples, to be followers of Jesus that love God, that love others, and that ultimately live on mission or make Jesus known. This is who we see God forming us to be. The question I really want to tackle and think about today is how do we do that? What does that look like on practical level? What does that look like on a day-to-day, rhythmic level of just simply living here on the Central Coast, in San Luis Obispo, in the outlying cities or areas? What does that look like for us to be able to accomplish that? Again, like I said, it's not enough to just simply have a big desire. So for some of us, we might have this, like, I just want to be like Jesus, but there is no activity in our lives that actually leads to that. One final thing I want to say before I jump into this is the act of salvation is totally independent of us acting or doing anything. It is a free gift of God in the same way if Slash were to walk up to you and give you his guitar, you didn't earn it, you didn't ask for it, he just simply gave it to you. It is a free gift of Jesus. But we have a responsibility to do something with that. And that's what we would call discipleship. It's called obedience. It's called following Jesus. It's called making day-to-day decisions in our lives to be a certain type of people that resemble Jesus. 
So let's talk a little bit about that here today. So what I want to do is I'm going to look at a handful of passages. So Luke chapter 9 is what we'll begin to read from. I'm going to read some of these passages. We'll make some observations, and then we will move on into some final observations, and then we will be done. So let's take a look at Luke chapter 9. I'll read some passages, kind of a famous scenario where Jesus says in Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 57, um, he says this. We're going to pick and choose some of these passages. So rather, we're going to basically read from Luke 9, 57, all the way down to Luke chapter 10, around verse 20. So not every single passage, but most. And there's some reasons why, which I won't necessarily get into because there's a lot of content that's going on here. But I really just want to focus on some main, primary, specific ideas that I'll, I'll talk about in just a second. So Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 57, says this. As they, they were going along the road, someone said to him, to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And then Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man is homeless. He has no place to lay his head. So you're going to follow me? Like, what, what are you looking for in following me? Are you looking for a nice, posh life? Are you looking for abundance? Are you looking for food? Because look- I have none of that. So if you're going to follow me, it will incur, evolve a cost upon your life that might not necessarily be one that you are necessarily thinking about will come along with it. So in other words, there's a, what we would call the cost of following Jesus, the cost of discipleship. Verse 59, he says, To another, Jesus said, follow me. But then they said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. Then Jesus said, let the dead go bury their own dead. But as for you, come, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So what's going on here? It seems kind of harsh. Like if someone... Jesus walks up to someone, they're like, hey, Jesus, uh, Jesus comes up and says, hey, follow me. And they're like, hey, you know what? I got to go bury, bury my dad. It would, at least the way that we would read this and understand this, it sounds like this, the dude's dad just died. And he's like, can I go at least go to the funeral? And Jesus is like, no, don't go to the funeral. Just come follow me right now. That's actually what a lot of scholars say is not what's happening. They would say probably more so in the original language, in the idiom of the day, that what he's actually suggesting is that let me wait for my dad to die. And then when my dad dies, I will get an inheritance. And when I get that inheritance, then I will come follow you. And Jesus' response to him is like, no, follow me now. And again, we, we get in a little bit into some of the excuses that sometimes people make. I'll follow you, Jesus, when I graduate from school. I'll follow you. I'll commit my life to you. And it's in total when I get married, when I get a job, when I buy a house. And we keep postponing it over and over and over again until something of a greater, more convenient day arrives. And what Jesus says, no, 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 if you're going to follow me, you, you, you got you to recognize that this, this involves obedience now, here, today. We go on to see that it says later on about verse 61, and then to another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those in my home. And then Jesus said to him, no one who has put his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So again, like I said, what we see is Jesus basically saying to follow me would involve a cost. Some, as I already mentioned, would call this a cost to discipleship. And what I would also suggest is that there is also a cost to what I would describe as non-discipleship. In other words, it will cost you everything to follow Jesus, but it will also cost you everything to not follow Jesus. Some of you are like, that's why I don't follow Jesus, because it costs too much. Do you realize the cost to non-discipleship is not just also losing something now, but it's also your eternity. The cost to discipleship may lose you, cost you many things, or not all things, even perhaps even now, but in light of eternity, you get it all back. Like This is the hope of what we would call the resurrection. This is what Jesus offers. So there is definitely a cost, and what Jesus is 
doing is laying down the reality that to follow me involves day-to-day -day habitual cost to follow me. So he goes on. Let's jump into verse uh, 1 of chapter 10, next chapter. Then Jesus appointed 72, and he sent them out. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest that uh, he's to send out labor. So what Jesus is saying, obviously, that there's a lot of needs that are happening right now, but the laborers are few. And, you know, I can, I can testify to this. I, I mean, um, just on a very practical and personal level. I mean, my wife and I moved here from Orange County 25 years ago. We planted Calvary Slow. We planted this church. It started in our living room, right? Uh, all we had was a 700-square-foot apartment on the corner of uh, Pismo Street and Beach, downtown San Luis Obispo. And we're like, what do we have? Okay, we got a kitchen, we got a living room, we got a couch, we got a, we got a Bible. So let's, let's make food, invite people into our living room, and let's teach the Bible. So that's kind of what we did. And we've continued to do that for the past 25 years, and it's become this, and it's awesome. Um, and the reality is, is that in light of that, um, there's always been the challenge of like, how we need, we need help. There's, there's always so much to be done and needs to arise. But Jesus says, look, there is a harvest out there, but the laborers are always, always to you. Pray that God would send up laborers that will see and catch a glimpse and be a part of rather than just simply be a consumer of spiritual goods and trinkets and ideas and ideologies, but be a part of what God's up to in this world and join. Join the team. Join the club. Join the family of what God is up to in this world and be a part of it. So more on that in just a moment. And then we go on to see in verse 3. It says, go your way. Behold, just again talking to the 72 people, go out. I'm sending you out. That's the key word. Again, there's other passages that come following that, but I want to just focus on the idea. Go out. I'm sending you out. In fact, the, uh, uh, the New Testament was written in Greek, at least in a particular region. At some point, it was then translated into Latin, and then when it was in Latin, the actual Greek or Latin word that was used there to send out, we get the um, the Latin word is missio. We get the English word. Guess what mission, or English word we get from that? is the word mission, right? Uh, that's where we get the idea of mission. So what does it mean to be sent out? It means to be on mission. What does it mean to be on mission? It means to be sent. So what Jesus is doing is he says, I'm sending you out on mission for a purpose to go as 72 disciples to go do certain things. What are they to do? That's what we're going to continue to read. He says to go. I'm sending you out. Verse 5, he says, whatever house you enter, um, first say, peace be on, this, be on this house. Verse seven, remain in the same house, eating and drinking, whatever it is that they provide. So whatever this mission involves, it involves going to people's houses, involves eating, right? Already sounds pretty, pretty rad. Like, how cool is that? Food, house, man, great. Let's follow Jesus. Verse seven, um, remain in that house, eating and drinking, whatever it is that they provide. Verse nine, heal the sick, in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So again, whatever this mission was that Jesus was sending his disciples out to do involved uh, making these announcements of the kingdom of God, whatever that is. We'll talk about that in two seconds. Um, and then say that God's kingdom has come near to them and heal, heal, heal the sick. Pray for them that they would be healed. Uh, let's skip on down to verse 17. And then it says the 72, then they return. And what condition did they return in? It's they returned in the condition of joy. Their hearts were overflowing. Why? Uh, he goes on answer. Lord, even the demons are subject to your name. So evil spirits, demonic influences, evil forces, whatever, whatever this is, uh, they were obviously responsive to the name of Jesus. And Jesus entrusts his 
Talmudin is the word that we used last week, the word disciple. Uh, we might want to call them in the modern language apprentices. He tasks his apprentices to go out and in his name, Jesus' name, they have the power, the same power that Jesus apparently had to cast out these evil influences over the lives of other people. It's, it's amazing. Isn't it a great story? How are we all doing? Is it okay? Let's keep reading. Verse 18. Behold, I have given you authority. Let's pause right there. How, how rad is that? Like what? Some of you guys are like, I want authority, right? Uh, hold on. It might be a different authority than maybe what you're like licking your lips for, but it's, a, it's authority nonetheless. It's an authority that is like a manager, not CEO. Jesus is CEO, right? He's the owner of the whole thing that we call creation. And what he does is he puts human beings in management, upper management positions to run things. What Adam and Eve did and that subsequently all humanity has done, is we're like, we don't want middle management. We want to be owner slash CEO of everything. Jesus, get out of our life. God, we don't want you. We denounce you. We emancipate ourselves from you. And then what we have is what we call planet Earth. Right? We have six o'clock news. We have social media. We have what's happening in our world today. Just turmoil, chaos, and, and breakdown. And yet what Jesus says, I'm going to give you authority. But the authority is not for you to like, do what you want to do, nor is it for you to usurp authority over people. In other words, to make others do for you what you want them to do. It's, it's an authority that's different. Um, and he says, I'm, I'm giving you authority. He says, uh, and then I said to them, I, I saw, or let me go back, uh, verse 2. Uh, and then he said, I, I, the harvest, hold on, where am I at right now? 19, there we go, sorry. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions. That's why. See, I need my glasses. I keep forgetting about these. Here we go. Don't make fun of me. 19, I have given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. So immediately you would think snakes and scorpions. Well, where does that fit in the storyline? Again, any of Jesus' readers or hearers of this, their mind would immediately gone back to the first chapter of the Bible, right? Uh, snake or third chapter, you know, snake comes onto the scene and begins to tempt. Apparently, Jesus says, I'm going to give you authority over the evil one that has incredible sway and influence and power over many. But you're going to have power over that, which means, is this small power, big power? It's massive. Who, who are these people that Jesus is giving this massive amount of power to? Knuckleheads, just like you and I. Apparently, it's how Jesus works. And he gives these people authority. And they come back. They're blown away by the fact that they have been able to have designated power, delegated power to them to do things that they would never have imagined doing just, you know, a few short years earlier. And yet, here they are, doing the unimaginable. That's what it means to follow Jesus, by the way. By his power, being invited, by grace, being given something we didn't earn, we didn't deserve, but in cooperation, obedience and love, in response to him, to his promptings, he trains us to become people that do the things that he does. It's amazing. It's amazing. And this is just the beginning of it. I mean, we're talking all eternity when Jesus comes back and brings healing to this broken, fractured, ruined, chaotic world. The New Testament writers say you will be kings and queens on that renewed creation. You will be judging, ruling over even angelic beings. Small honor, high honor. 
high honor. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Yeah. Yeah, you should. Because that's what we're called to. I think a lot of times we in theory believe it, but in practice, we just think that we're dirtbags. We're failures. We're soiled by our sin. We're ruined by our own desires. But what Jesus calls us to is something beyond what we can ever even imagine. It's absolutely breathtaking when you consider what God has in store for those that love him, that serve him, that are brought into this work that he's up to in this world right now. And it begins right now. It's not some future state in some future existence. It begins right today of turning to God and saying, yes, I follow you. Yes to you, Jesus, to whatever it is that you want to do in my life. And again, in verse 19, he goes on and says, Behold, I've given you authority over snakes and scorpions, over all the power of the enemy. Nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So, so good. His whole point is like, look, this is nothing. Want to know what's something? Your name in the presence of God has been given dignity and value and honor. That's how God sees you. Again, a lot of us, we hear that, and in theory, we're like, cool. But in practice, if we truly believe this, you realize the type of consequences. I mean, I'm talking good, positive, transformational, habitual transformation that this will have over your life. Should you allow that to creep into your, creep into your heart and begin to do a metamorphosis? It will change you radically change you because you will live you begin to live as if you truly are loved and honored by this God that loves you so nonetheless what we see here is Jesus sending out his disciples so let's, let's take a look at a handful of the patterns that we observe with Jesus just from things that we looked at so number one we see that Jesus actually calls a bunch of people um, some followed obviously um, some didn't some just simply made excuses. And the reality is, is nothing's really changed in 2,000 years because the same categories apply today. Some people are like, I'll follow Jesus. Others just don't. They're like, I got other things to do. Others just make excuses. I'll follow Jesus when fill in the blank. You know, that's kind of how things roll. Um, secondly, we see that these disciples, they followed Jesus and they were, they were always with him wherever he was at. So what's a disciple? He's somebody that's with Jesus. So you can always determine, like, like wh- where's Jesus? You should be able to look at disciples and say, that's where Jesus is at. He's hanging out with homeless people. Or he's, you know, chilling with a bunch of non-believers and just showing kindness. Or he's praying for the sick. Or that's where Jesus is at. He's doing this stuff. Um, that's where the disciples were. Thirdly, we see that disciples were becoming like Jesus. Their lives were actually beginning to take the form and shape of Jesus, which leads to the last thing, is that they were ultimately doing what Jesus did. That's what we see. And I think about this in the context of apprenticeship or discipleship. Next slide. So these are some apprenticeship that, uh, techniques or ideas that a lot of like modern day, even you know, self-help books or that books that deal with apprenticeships. Have you ever been on apprenticeship? You know, it kind of involves at least these four steps. Um, number one, it's this idea of I do. So if I was the leader leading somebody, it would be I do. You just simply watch. It's kind of step number one. So I'll be over here doing something, or the apprentice or the leader would be doing something, and the apprentice would just simply watch and observe, take notes. Secondly, I do, you help. So the leader might be doing something. and might involve the other person and say, hey, why don't you go ahead and do X, Y, and Z? Help me out with this and that. Be faithful. And if they're not faithful, then they might go back to step number one and say, I just want you to watch because I've asked you to do X, Y, and Z. And you haven't done it. You haven't. So 
uh, redo the steps over again. Thirdly, uh, you do, and then I'll help. You do, and I'll help. I'll be a part of just the process, but you, you're kind of taking the lead. And then fourthly, you do, and I'll watch. And I think this is exactly what we see in Luke chapter 10. Like Jesus sends out these 72, and he's like, I'm, I'm not going to be with you. You go and do, and I'll, I'll, I'll just watch. I'll, I'll listen to your stories. So they come back. They tell this incredible experience that happens. And uh, so, again, this is, this is kind of an amazing thing. But an apprentice ultimately to Jesus, their end goal, uh, I think I have a slide for this. Their end goal is ultimately to do and to be like Jesus. So I'll just read this. An apprentice to Jesus with time, with time, doesn't happen immediately, right? And with training, in other words, we develop certain habits and practices in our life that help shape us to be a certain type of people. The same way, if you're going to play Sweet Child of Mine, it takes a lot of hard work and labor. So just having a big desire, big heart is not enough, apparently. Or even, even having the best guitar in the world is apparently not enough. You've got to have training. You've got to have some degree of response and devotion to the actual pra- the, the, the habit of it. And then by the Holy Spirit. So in other words, Jesus' presence with us through the Holy Spirit uh, we will end up becoming like Jesus and ultimately doing what Jesus did. So what, what did Jesus do? That's a big question. So uh, I can break this down basically into nine things. There's no particular order, but I think these nine things kind of encompass the life of the stuff that Jesus did. So number one, he preached the gospel. He, in other words, he was making this pronouncement, this announcement that the good news, whatever the good news is, was, was declared in him, that Jesus is the good news, he went out around announcing. Secondly, secondly we see that he uh, taught the way, which meant, I mean, if you think of like the Sermon on the Mount, he's teaching people, instructing them on how to walk, how to actually put to practice what it means to be kingdom people, people that are part of God's new family. How, does it live? how are you supposed to live? If you are a new family member of this family, what does it mean to live? No longer as an orphan, but actually as if God is your father. What does that look like? That's Jesus taught the way. Thirdly, we see that Jesus healed the sick. He went around healing the sick. Fourthly, he cast out demons, his evil influences, or spirits. Fifthly, he ate with people that were far from God. And I love this about Jesus. There's multiple times where Jesus is sitting down having meals. He's always getting in trouble for it, by the way. There's one time, of course, this guy named Zacchaeus. He's walking down the street. He sees Zacchaeus up in a tree because he's a really short dude. He says, hey, Zach, come down and why don't you make me some meal cool 90s name by the way and uh, let me come over to your house and since you're an oppressor of all the people why don't you bring all your oppressive people over because you're rich and you take advantage of everybody how about you show me some love i love jesus how amazing is this he's like you're gonna make me dinner tonight right so if you go up show up at someone's house you're like make me dinner like you you may be acting like jesus you may just be selfish but point of the matter is jesus did this he goes and he's constantly having dinner with people that are far from god uh, next we see Jesus doing justice, in other words, setting things right, bringing dignity and value and respect back to people that have been marginalized or pushed off to the side. So there's occasions where even Jesus does this with women, because women, for the most part, were highly marginalized. So if anybody ever suggests that Jesus was sexist, does not know scripture, Jesus was radically for the oppressed, the marginalized, the people off in the margins, and he brings dignity, value, and respect back to many of these people. We call that justice. It's setting the world to right. Next, we see that Jesus prays. Eighthly, we see that he's all about peacemaking, making peace. Ninthly, we see that he was standing up and ultimately speaking to both religious and political corruption and power. This is the stuff that you can say that Jesus was doing. This is all within the context of what we would call the kingdom of God Work. This is what it means to announce, to proclaim, to live 
in God's kingdom. So this is what Jesus is up to. And what's fascinating to me is that this is what Jesus does. If you want a you know, further example of this, um, read the book of Acts. The whole, the whole book of Acts is really the story from start to finish about people influenced, shaped, transformed by Jesus doing Jesus' stuff. The whole book. So you ask the question, where's Jesus in the book of Acts? He's not there. I mean, he is there through the Holy Spirit's presence. He's in heaven, apparently, with God. He's not physical. He's not tangibly walking planet Earth anymore. But he is doing his work still continually through his apprentices that are doing all this stuff. Preaching the gospel, teaching the way, healing the sick, standing up to injustice. All of this stuff his disciples and followers do. So the question is, uh, 2,000 years later, what should we be doing? Sitting in a church and doing nothing? No, I would call that American Christianity. What does it mean to be a Jesus follower today? It means to, nothing's changed, by the way. It's still the same. It means to live the way of Jesus. It means to do these things. Jesus invites us into this stuff, to follow him, to be like him, to be with him, to do the stuff that Jesus does. It's absolutely amazing to consider this. Again, you can ask the question, well, who are we who, in terms of deserving that? We're just like the apostles. We're flawed people, yet incredibly loved people. And that changes us. It sets us free from the vices and the sins that ensnares us and traps us. And by way of the Holy Spirit's power, welcomes us to become part of what God is up to in this world. So I want to finish with a few thoughts and we'll wrap things up. So I want to finish with just some three thoughts to consider. Number one, that the Holy Spirit is always, always present. So I want to encourage you to think about this. So some of the questions that you might be asking is, where do I begin? What should I do? How can I begin to actually cultivate habits in my life that will help me to become more effective, to become like Jesus? And again, like I said, wishful thinking, big desire alone is not going to help you. So the question you've got to ask, where do you want to be? How do, you, how do you want to be representing Jesus in your life? So these are some practical steps I think you can just begin to take and think about. Number one is the Holy Spirit is always present. So therefore, begin to learn and cultivate a life of continual dependence upon him. So let me give you a very practical way in which this can begin to play out in your life. The very first thing you do in your morning, what do you do? You don't got to answer that, but just think about it. The very, I'm talking the very first 30 seconds, the moment your eyes open, and the moment your brain begins to become awake and alive, what's the very first thing you do? My guess would be most of us, many of us, we reach for our cell phone and we begin to look at Instagram or Facebook or mail or whatever. And what I would suggest to you is before you even grab your phone, if you sleep with your phone, develop a new habit. That's all I got to say. Develop a new habit, right? Um, the point that I would make is this. First thing you should do in the morning, the moment your eyes open, just thank God for his presence. God, thank you for another day. And I invite you, Holy Spirit, to speak to me, to show me how you want me to live. I want an awareness of your presence. What are you up to? How can I be a part of that? How can I trust you today in good, uh, concrete ways of obedience and follow you? Help speak to my heart uh, about what's on your mind, about what's on your heart. Um, you can just begin to cultivate that. And again, that doesn't happen immediately. It happens by way of making conscious decisions 
to say, I want to cultivate this. That's what the word cultivate means. It means that, think of cultivating a garden, right? You don't instantaneously go from massive amounts of weeds and zero fruit or veggies to, you know, a massive bumper crop. It takes cultivation. It takes active, daily plucking out weeds and take, it takes daily a watering and fertilizing and tilling and taking care of your actual garden so that in time you will begin to see first fruits and you'll begin to see fruit in your life and it will begin to cultivate goodness. It's the same way it is in walking with Jesus. Begin someplace by cultivating this relationship with the Holy Spirit presence right now, right where you're at. And this can happen anywhere. I mean, it can happen, obviously, like I said, in the morning. It can happen while you're standing in line at Trader Joe's. Rather than standing in this really long line, you're like, I'm really bored. What am I going to do? I should just look at my phone. Like the instinct, right, many of us. And again, I'm not, I'm not judging anybody because I'm right there myself, is just don't grab your phone. Instead, in that moment, maybe just ask the Holy Spirit. Like, God, just thank you for your presence here right now in the midst of this really ridiculously long line. I really wish they would open up three more, but they're not. So I'm just going to trust you in this moment. And this might take longer than what I expected. So I'm asking you right now to help me have patience. Help me be aware of this presence of where I'm at right now. Help me be aware maybe there's people right now next to me that are going through tough times, tough situations, deep depression, deep anxiety. Help me to be present, to listen to your spirit, to your voice, and how you want to maybe teach me, guide me, direct me in this moment. It takes time. It takes time. Nobody will get it immediately. But I think that's a place to start. Secondly, is uh, know your stage of discipleship and then your season of life. First, stage of discipleship. Do you, do you know where you're at as a follower of Jesus? Um, there was some work done um, by a, I'll show you the next little slide, and this guy does this whole workbook on um, real life. It's called Real Life Discipleship. It's a great workbook. I'd highly recommend you can just check it online. But he kind of breaks it down into basically five categories of being in proximity or relationship to Jesus. And the first one is he says there are those that are spiritually dead. And their ideas or their language and behavior is actually marked by unbelief or disbelief in God or a rejection of God's will. So this would be somebody that may know a little bit about God. But if you were to ask them how receptive, how open are you to actually allowing God to radically overhaul, make over your life. And if your response is like, not at all, I'm not, not interested in all, I can take care of myself, then, then the Bible category for that would be spiritually dead. And what, what that person needs is to be alive and wakened up to God, to realize that God is not the big boogeyman in the sky, he's not some evil dictator, he's not an ancient grandpa that's out to ruin and sabotage your life, he's actually a loving father that cares about you and truly wants to help you. So that's spiritually dead. Secondly, is a spiritual infant. So this is somebody that would be basically marked by some degree of ignorance and or maybe even confusion. There's a lot of confusion, a lot of ignorance about maybe who God is, what God's like, because they've fed their entire life on a false narrative of who God is. Um, and there's a level of vulnerability. There's some degree of simplistic understanding about who God is. But this particular person, I would say they, what they need is just attention to grow and to ultimately thrive, to feast on God's word. I would say a lot of these people have this desire to consume spiritual nourishment. So what's beautiful about a spiritual infant is this deep hunger to really want to know more. And if you've been around spiritual brand new babes, like, like this, should, this is natural and this is awesome. Like we have a lot of babes and infants in our church, which is amazing. I love it. And we also have people that are non-Christians here as well, like spiritually dead people. And, and we love it as well. And if, if, that's, if that's either one of you are, are these, I'm so glad that you're here because our hope would be that in time you begin to grow and learn and maybe come to life and begin to become nourished as a follower of Jesus. 
um, a spiritual child would be kind of the next one, the way he describes this. And this is one that might have a strong need for affirmation of others. Maybe it's some degree like a self-centeredness or an idealism, an imbalance in their confidence level. You know, they see themselves as being far more advanced than what they really are to some degree, because that's kind of what sometimes uh, actual, like, literal children can sometimes assume. Like, they're, you know, you ask them how old they are, like, I'm four and a quarter? Like, like, you're just, like you know, I'm, I'm older than what I, what I think I am right now. Um, but for a spiritual child, it's like what they need are gospel-centered relationships and instruction and guidance, gospel teaching, gospel coaching, if you want to think of it that way, to grow in their identity in Christ because they, they are not the sum total of what they do. They have dignity, value, and worth because Jesus loves them. And again, um, is there anything, I think in some church contexts, there is a derogatory stance or idea that can be oftentimes cast upon spiritual infants or spiritual children. And I think that's really, that's unfortunate. It's really bad. Um, we welcome, we love the fact that there are spiritual infants and spiritual children in our church. Um, what I would suggest is that if you have been a follower of Jesus, um, you know, for 20 years, and you're still a spiritual infant, that's, that's, that's not good. Like, that, that, that is a sign that something's not right in your spiritual development. Something has gone awry. Something may need to be addressed. You may need to have other people look into and speak into your life and help provide guidance and coaching in your life to help you to examine maybe some of the areas where you keep kind of getting trapped up in. But I would suggest that this is, these, are, these are healthy, normal things. Uh, spiritual young adult, this would be someone that um, they have this growth uh, from being self-focused and self-centered to becoming more aware of the needs of others. Um, this is somebody that, as they grow into spiritual young adult, they become more aware. Like, oh, there's somebody over there. It looks like they might need some prayer. And they might go get someone to get them. That, that's a really good sign. It means that they are becoming aware of something beyond themselves. And then finally, he describes spiritual parents. And these are, these are people that, 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 in the faith, they see themselves as somebody, not, you know, they, not as arrived. They would see themselves as somebody like, I, I want to help make other disciples. I want to help give what I have, what I've learned, what I've accumulated over life, to impart that in the lives of other people. So what I would suggest for us as a church community, I would say the first three are probably, for the most part, where we're at as a church. The majority of people in our church fall within one of the first three categories of the spiritually dead, um, meaning not really following Jesus yet, but still kind of learning and growing. We're so, so happy that we have a large contingency of people that are in that place, in that journey of trying to make sense and understand who the gospel, who Jesus is, what the gospel is all about. We have spiritual infants. Um, we also have spiritual children. And, and I love this, but I would suggest that really what we need as well, we, we need more spiritual parents and more spiritual young adults that would be willing to say, I'm, I want to invest in this community because I want to help spiritual, spiritually dead people meet the living Jesus I want to help people that are spiritual infants continue to grow and understand the word of God and how to live according to that and make sense of some of these categories and ideas and concepts that might be a little bit confusing to them. And I want to help spiritual children begin to become aware of the needs of others and grow in their walk with Jesus. Again, because the end game of this is to be like Jesus, guys. Does that make sense? That's, that's our aim. That's what we want to do. So what I would suggest, first and foremost, um, Take an assessment. Think about where you're at in terms of somewhere on this. And again, if, if you don't like these categories, that's fine. You can remake them in however you want. But just somewhere along, think along the lines as to where, do an assessment. Where are you at in your development as a disciple of Jesus? Um, okay, next slide. We'll go back, I should say, back to the other, other one. Um, sorry, go back to the other one just before that. There we go. Um, know your season of life. And this is also another important thing because it's important to identify what type of season of life that you're in. And then begin to assess, like, how can I use the gifts and callings that God's given me to make a difference in this church community? So for some of you, like, 
um, you know, the season of life that you're in, you, you may need a good kick in the pants to say, get off of Fortnite and stop downloading epic amounts of television on your iPad and start doing something for the kingdom of God. Contributing, serving, using some of your money that gets wasted nonstop on other alternative things and use that for the kingdom of God. Others, you may have been in a raw, vulnerable place and what you need is to not be working, serving, working hard. You need to just take a break and sit down and find the Spirit's work of revitalization, of healing, of deep healing in your own heart, and just take a, take a break and chill and slow down and focus on the deep love of God for you and let that begin to bring healing back to your heart. That's what it means to know your season of life. Does that make sense? All right, um, next one is, last one here. Don't underestimate, sorry, number three. There we go. Don't underestimate the importance of being present in community of Central Coast people as followers of Jesus. Here's what I mean by this. I think there's a tendency for us to think that the, the true like, powerhouses in the kingdom of God are those that are like pastors and worship leaders and people that are like professional. Like, I, I want to try to dispel that. That's a myth that needs to be finally, completely like, undone, unplugged, and re- erased from our minds. God has given every single one of us that are followers of him his, his same spirit. The Spirit of God is in every single one of us. And where in the, the, the way that God gets his message communicated, the kingdom preached, people prayed for, is, is through each one of us receiving and responding to the Holy Spirit's call to go and be present with others on the Central Coast, right? We love our city. We love the Central Coast. One of the most powerful ways in which you can do this is just being present amongst other people. Let me read you a passage out of the book of uh, First Peter, just listen to this because it's not up on the screen. Just listen. First Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good deeds glorify God on the day of visitation. So here's what he's saying. I love this passage because basically Peter's basically describing, don't want to trip here, He's saying that, uh, listen, as you live as a follower of Jesus, just in the midst of the culture at large, the way Peter says it is, among the pagans, it's not a derogatory term, he's just saying, among those that are not followers of Jesus, as you live as a follower of Jesus, doing the stuff of Jesus, I mean, good works, good deeds, praying for the sick, having meals with people that are far from God, doing the Jesus stuff, they will, by your good deeds, recognize a difference of the way things can be. Do you understand the power of that? This is not about invite people to church and they'll be changed. This is about you be a Christian. You live as a follower of Jesus in your neighborhood, at your coffee shop, in the line that you go through at Trader Joe's, in the little cubicle that you like inhabit, in the space that you live in on the campus, in the dorms, in the classroom, in the lab, wherever it is that you are, live as one that is not soiled by the things of this world, but as one that's following wholeheartedly the heart of Jesus. And by your actions, just being present, you will begin to set forth an understanding as to what Jesus is like. I'll give you an example of how my wife and I have, have done that, just you know, briefly. Just, so over the years, again, like I said, we've lived here for 25 years, um, and every year my wife and I kind of do this like assessment. Okay, what is God wanting us to do 
maybe this year, there are new habits, new ideas, new thoughts that maybe God is inviting us to be a part of. And again, our lives are, are busy just like everyone else. You know, it's just like, what's going on in your life? I'm so busy. Like, I'm, we're just right there with you. So busy. Um, but my wife take these times to just like really assess, okay, what, what is maybe God calling us to this year or this season of our life? And uh, a couple of years ago, um, my wife, she has her own business and it's been doing really well. She's had this unique opportunity to like join a couple of business associations in San Luis Obispo. One of them is like a, a, a women's uh, business organization. Another one is kind of like more of a, you know, multi-gender type organization. And my wife just felt to uh, go to both of them. And I'm just like, yeah, great, let's go. And it costs money. And, uh, but my wife goes there, you know, obviously representing her business, but also she's a follower of Jesus. She's my wife. She's involved with this church. So she kind of has like dual citizenship. She's in a business world, but she's also like in the church world. And so she's just living and she loves it because she can just go hang out with a bunch of people that are not Christians. They're very, very far from God and just have meals with them, get into their life with them, talk about the challenges that they're going through, talk about the divorce that they might be facing, talk about the the hardships that they are confronted with. And just by being present, my wife has had so many occasions of just showing the love of Jesus, of just even praying for some of these people, inviting some of them to church from time to time. And it's absolutely amazing just to see what God has, has opened up. And all I'm simply saying is don't underestimate the power of just being a Jesus following person wherever you're at. Because that's how the message of the gospel goes out, by being Jesus' people all around this world in those situations like that. So lastly, I want to just finish with some ways in which we can kind of bring some practicality to this within our own church community. So this is what I would personally, as well as the eldership, like to invite you guys to consider, the elders, the leaders of this church, to just think about it, to be a part of. Number one is to practice the way of Jesus, which is everything we've just been talking about. In other words, asking God, how can I trust you in the midst of this world? What are the ways in which I can tangibly demonstrate your life in this world all around me by your power, by the spirit of your uh, uh, Holy Spirit's power in me, through me to do this. Um, praying for people, just doing all the stuff of Jesus that we looked at. Secondly, join a community group. Like we see that all of this stuff, you really cannot truly be a follower of Jesus and really grow, and I should say in some substantial manner, uh, isolated. You really truly can't. So if you're aim, this is where you got to think about this, where do you want to go? Where do you want to be? What type of a Christian do you want to be? An American Christian? who is more prone, I would say, towards consumerism and just simply critique, because that's what consumerism ultimately leads us to. The consumeristic lifestyle at some point leads us to the type of a person that's, not, uh, that's oftentimes overly critical of everything, or to be somebody that is truly like Jesus, loves like Jesus, is able to play these mean guitar riffs like Jesus, right? Metaphorically, of course. But the point of the matter is, is at some point we have to ask ourselves, what type of a person... Do I want to be? And, and what practices am I doing right now that are getting me towards that goal? Uh, I would suggest you cannot do this in isolation. You have to do it within the midst of community. Because I'll just give you a really practical example. One of the things that the Bible calls us to is to love one another. How can we love each other standing at arm's length from each other? The answer is obviously you, you can't. So love involves laying down walls, becoming vulnerable with other people, and being able to be in people's space and letting other people, you know, shockingly, be in your space, which I'm an introvert, and that's hard for me sometimes. I, I'm more than happy to just spend multiple days on end without having to talk to anybody. Like, that, to me, is a time of a really 
enjoyable moment in my life. But obviously, God's called us to something. And so we, by grace, learn how to do and adjust and be a part of that. So join community group. We have, and then secondly, I would say with regard to the same context, um, we mentioned this earlier, the elements class. It's a way for you, as I mentioned, if you're non-Christian, if you are a new Christian, or if you are somebody that's kind of on this journey, new to our church family, or wanting to reorient yourself, sign up for the elements class. It begins in a couple weeks. It will be on Sunday mornings. This service, so you might need to go to first service to, to go to that service and then come here for that class. Um, thirdly, gather on Sundays. I mentioned this last week, so again, all this is by way of review from last week. Um, the latest statistics actually point out that in America right now, um, that the average American churchgoer actually goes to church once every four to six weeks. Now just think about that. So let's say, for example, again, go back to the, uh, the slash analogy of you playing Sweet Child of Mine. If your game plan, your big game plan is to like, be downtown, play Sweet Child of Mine in front of an audience of people, and that's your big game, your big win is to be able to do that, and someone would ask you, okay, tell me, what are you doing to be able to get ready for that? You're like, I play, I practice for about an hour and a half once every six weeks. Are you going to do a good job or are you going to probably flop? Good chance you're going to flop. Because it's not enough. Like you got, it's a part of like a habit, a practice, so we would describe it as. So being committed to a church family Finding a church family. There's lots of great church families on the Central Coast. We're not the only one. There's lots of great churches. So it's not a matter of like, there's not enough good church families to find. But what I would suggest is that we have, and again, this is a partial, like, I don't know, cultural critique. I think what we have are commitment problems. We, we are afraid to commit. Like if I commit to this particular person or this church or even this job, then I might be missing out on alternatives. And I, and I would suggest, you're, you are hurting yourself as a follower of Jesus remaining in that status. And I would not be demonstrating love if I did not invite you to stop doing that and to live an alternative way, to be committed. If it's not to this church, it's fine. Get committed to Grace, get committed to Mountain Brook, get committed to another, the multiple great churches on the Central Coast, but get committed, stay plugged in, serve, be a part of that church, give your life to that church. You realize Jesus is actually all about that? Is that not the gospel? Jesus gave himself for the church. So when you and I see that as an aim and we give ourselves for this thing called the church, God's people, we're, we're being like Jesus. We're being shaped like him. Uh, fourthly, serve. We just mentioned that earlier. Find some ways to get involved. Fill that thing out and turn it in. Fifthly, give. And again, we mentioned this last week. Like for us as a church, this is how we're able to do what we do. I'll talk a little bit more about this next week. But the idea is that we are a nonprofit. We don't sell stuff. We don't give, I mean, we give lots of stuff away. I should say, you know, if you got a cup of coffee today, it was free to you, right? Um, but cost costs somebody something. Um, it costs somebody to, to, to buy it, you know. But here's the point. That, and by the way, we don't, we don't sit in here like rent free. We gotta, we got to pay rent. And where's that money come from? Like, it comes from people that see this church as their family, and they say, I'm going to give to it. I'm going to be part of what God's doing here so that people can have a place to sit and learn and grow and be transformed and have space where Jesus is able to do Jesus' stuff in their hearts and transform them and reveal sin, and they can repent, and they can have safe spaces to be counseled and trained and taught and set free and delivered and so on and so forth. That's what this whole church is all about. So if, if this is, you know, we say this all the time, that if this is not your church, you know, that's, that's fine. There's never any ob- obligation. But if this is your church family, like what would it look like for you to, to contribute, to give? 
And again, we'll talk, like I said, more about this next week. But the, the thought is that sometimes we're like, I don't really have that much. But again, just to gently push back, the way that we oftentimes spend our money is it's not that we don't have money. It's that we choose to spend it on things that really matter to us. And I, I'm just calling us to think about what type of value does this community, we call this local church, this expression of Jesus' family, have in your life? What value does it? And so the invitation would be to, to give joyfully, to give generously, and to give with a sense of regularity. That's, that's, how, that's what we're inviting you to think about. So at the end of the day, I want to finish with this thought. At the end of the day, no matter where you're at in the spectrum, my hope would be, if anything, that you would think about what type of, where you're at in the realm of following Jesus, where you want to go, and then for you to ask the question, how am I going to get there? So again, like with everything, if you are here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus, my, my invitation to you would be just pause and consider the beauty of Jesus and respond to him. And I would say that across the board, no matter where you're at, if you are a spiritual infant, if you're a spiritual adolescent, if you're a spiritual you know, a young adult, if you're a spiritual you know, grandpa, that you would look at the beauty of Jesus and let his love for you be what compels you to do what we do. God reveals himself to us. Our job is to respond. That's what worship is, and that's what we're going to do now. So I'm going to invite you to just respond as we come to the bread and the cup, and we drink and we eat by dipping the bread. Don't, don't, don't drink it. By dipping the bread in there, it's a way of reminding ourselves of what we've been invited to. We've been invited to a table. So the worship team's coming up. We've been invited to a table. Do you realize that? That's what salvation is. Is God saying to you and I, who are far from him at one point, saying, come, follow me. Come to the table. Eat with me. Drink with me. Be changed. It's this journey, trusting, of becoming vulnerable. Trust scares us because in order to trust, you've got to become vulnerable. You've got to be willing to say, I'm going to put some stuff on the line. I'm going to enter into something that might feel a little bit unfamiliar. And that's what the invitation of the gospel is all about. So no matter where you're at, my hope would be that we would enter into trust,